Um, today's speaker um, is um, one of the bright young stars of um, racial and ethnic studies nationally uh, and of our sociology department particularly. Um, his name is Reg Daniel. He is an assistant professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara. Um, he is the author of a new book uh, called More Than Black? Question mark, about racial constructions in American history and society and the multiracial movement. I have been privileged to know Reg for about a dozen years. Um, I am particularly enjoying today's occasion because in the 12 years I have known him, neither of us has ever finished a sentence when in the other person's company. And I get to talk unimpeded in his presence today. Reg is one of the brightest people I have ever met uh, and one of the most genuine friends. He is also the co-editor of a book that will be out <clears throat> about this time next year from the University of Notre Dame Press uh, called Racial Thinking in the United States, colon, Uncompleted Independence about the history of American racial ideas and the ways that they have changed in recent years and the ways they may change in the immediate future. He has behind that two more book projects that he may be induced to speak with you about. Uh, he is extraordinarily prolific. Um, he is a tremendous teacher and he is my friend, Reg Daniel. Thank very, everyone for being here. I, with the rain, I wasn't sure what would happen. And in fact, I had to get someone to give me a ride. And I have to make a special sort of announcement about thanks to Chris Allen and our social department who actually came by to pick me up. Um, I'm also really excited to see as many. I didn't there, think there would be so many students here. But knowing Paul, I figured, ah, some people will probably be there. So I really appreciate you being here. Um, and. As I debated about how I was going to present this, the audience may help me define that because I always present uh, what a colleague very affectionately called Reg, a Reg Light version of this because it can get so complex. And the book goes into a lot of historical material that I don't think it would be appropriate given the time today, but I do want to point out some things that I think are fairly relevant. One of them is, is as I looked at the uh, description of the talk, uh, which is taken actually from the, the, the paperback version, I thought, you know, I have a feeling people are going to think I'm going to have them stand up and hold hands and sing Kumbaya in the beginning <laughs> and then close with We Are the World or something like that. Because what this suggests is certainly a very hopeful scenario about race relations in the United States. And I battled with publishers over all kinds of things, one of which was what we should put on the cover. I and mean, you'll find that market forces are everywhere, including when it comes to writing books. And what they want is something that will sell. And certainly, I really like this statement, but it may make me all sound, sound a little bit more naive than I really am, or at least than I, than I think I am, um, in terms of this subject. Because the whole topic of multiracial identity, I would say, is one of the most um, has been one of the most controversial topics uh, to emerge in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, uh, when 
Paul did his first book, and I have to say that his book was actually the pioneering book. There have been several since his in 89, Maria Roots, two edited volumes. Uh, and I had uh, chapters that I contributed to, and Paul did also. However, his book was the standalone book in 1989 that came out. No one was really talking about this. There had been some previous research in the 70s and late 60s, but it had not gotten the kind of attention that he gave it. And when I read the book, I was really surprised that actually somebody was successful in publishing something like this, thinking, wow, a publisher really had some sort of vision of what was really going on in the United States because the politics and publishing and race are right there just like everywhere else from the White House to the boardroom. So, I mean, it's not, it's, in not a, it's not invisible despite some people's claims. It's very real, if not always articulated. It has a significant impact on all kinds of things, and I found that in doing this kind of research, which for some people is very controversial and a lot of people don't want to hear it talked about, uh, one, of, uh, one of the things that is, I could say is, is that the whole phenomenon of multiracial identity for a lot of people in the United States is very threatening, partially because of some very legitimate reasons about the history of race in this country and where multiracial people in other parts of the world have uh, been positioned in the society socially, uh, quite apart from what other individual, what individuals are doing. And since the United States is probably the, I'd say, I'd say it is the only country in the Americas and one of the only ones in the world, I'm going to be cautious about saying it is the only one in the world, that simply assumes there are no people who have identities that cross several different groups. Uh, the assumption is, is you're one thing and choose the right one and hurry up because I have to go to lunch. So it's kind of like when you talk to people in the United States and you say you're a multiracial person, there's this kind of like, uh, huh? What do you mean? Uh, and they say, well, you know, you're, you're, uh, many different things. Well, so am I. It's like, yeah, but what do you identify as? And then there's another blank. Oh. And so clearly, this is not a discussion about ancestry, because we share about 33,000 ancestors since 1600. So that's a lot of people in your family, most of whom you probably do not know. Uh, but if that's, a, if that's an ancestral fact, and that we as human beings share more genetically than, we're, than, than we don't share, so 90% 90, 90 of our genetic inheritance as human beings is shared. Clearly, when we talk about race, we're talking about something that has a very recent origin in terms of the social construction of it in the beginning of Europe's rise to global domination. And ultimately, race became one of the tools that Europeans essentially constructed based largely on physical appearance, but ultimately it got grounded in biology to justify why it was people of European descent were superior to everybody else. And so you have this construction of Europeans as this sort of superior category, and everybody else is some kind of other. Uh, and even among Europeans, there was a ranking. You know, the further you get to the Mediterranean, that's not quite as superior as Northern Europe. And then when you get to North Africa, it gets really confusing. So. One of the policies that Europeans implemented in the United States, unlike some of the other parts of the world, was that we just are going to say there are no multiracial people. In other words, there are not people who come from multiple backgrounds. We just say they aren't, therefore they aren't. Quite apart from people's lived experience, quite apart from other issues, and there was a political reason behind it, because one of the first things they implemented early on was laws to prevent interracial marriage and punishment for interracial sexual relations. Because one of the first things that messes up boundaries and categories is people who fit in many places. And if you have all these people who could fit in a lot of different places, who are also partially of European ancestry, it calls into the question the whole notion of white supremacy. Because, well, if they're part us, where does that put them? 
And English Americans, unlike the Portuguese and Spaniards, just said, well, it's real simple. The English is superior to both the Portuguese and the Spanish and everyone else on the planet, so we'll just say everybody that is not English, okay, not European, is going to be an other. And therefore, however much ancestor you have of that may vary in terms of how much of an other you are, but ultimately you're not equal to us. The one group where the most restrictive, what they call rule of hypodescent, was applied, and that means if you are the offspring of a member of a dominant group, and a subdominant group, you are identified solely by the ancestry of the subdominant group. With other groups that do not have African ancestry, there's been a little bit more flexibility. It is not absolutely 100% consistent that if you're part Native American, that you're going to be considered and identify only as Native American. The entertainment business is full of people, I don't know if I can say that on video, but Kevin Costner and Kim Basinger, a ton of folks uh, who have Native American ancestry, usually Cherokees, usually she's a princess, um, but that's another whole talk. The fact of the matter is, is that Native American ancestry is very pervasive among people in the United States. It's probably one of the most common ancestries. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the living conditions of Native Americans, of course, there's a whole different discussion about the day-to-day -day lives. But in terms of having some flexibility of seeing you're a European American, or as the current popular parlance is white people, I prefer to say European American for a variety of other reasons, which I can explain a little later. Um, you can be white if you want to, or you can be Native American, depending on what the particular tribal group you say you're part of has in terms of what you have to have ancestry-wise to be a member. So, right there, there's a different discussion. Part Asian people, part the Latino, although that gets really complicated because according to our census, Latinos are an ethnic group. They're the only ethnic group in the country, and they're not a racial group. It's like, okay, you're either, we have two ethnic groups, Latino, or as they say, Hispanic, and non-Hispanic. And it's like, oh, okay, well, but you could be racially white, according to the Census Bureau, and still be a Latino ethnic person. Very interesting politics behind that, which I won't have time to go into, but it's in the book. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that when it came to people of African descent, in order to increase the number of slaves to make sure that every offspring of a slave owner, even if it was a loving relationship, most often not, uh, but most of it was the product of rape or extended concubine, as you might call it, uh, it guaranteed, if you say, well, everybody who has one African-American forebearer is automatically an African-American and therefore enslavable, it works quite well economically. You've got your expanded labor force. And in some parts of the South, in fact, a lot of observers from the North noticed, and a lot of abolitionists used this to critique slavery, they would see all these blue-eyed blonde slaves. And it was like, oh, how could you enslave these people? You know, it's like, well, what about the people in the field that are very African-looking? But in order to appeal to what we might call the white supremacist conscience of even some of the abolitionists and people who were horrified by slavery, they were not necessarily horrified by the institution, but the fact that you were enslaving what they thought visually, at least, were ostensibly white people. And yet the one-drop rule says, no, they're black. So clearly... The one-drop rule is an extreme kind of hypodescent. It's like, well, it's not three-quarters, I don't care, you know, two-eighths. It's like, if I find out you have anyone in your lineage who's African-American 400 years back, that's a bit of a stretch, but essentially the argument is, if it's there at all, automatically, I expect you to let me treat you as a second-class citizen. I expect you to understand that you cannot partake in any of the privileges of whiteness, and don't even go there. I certainly don't even try to be a multiracial person, because we just don't have any.
So right there, the whole social construction of blackness has a very unique place in United States jurisprudence. And part of the topic of the book is to really deal with that. And yet I would have to say that this discussion around multiraciality is not a black-white thing. It involves numerous combinations. But because of the specificity of blackness, I chose to look at it that way. And then also, if you notice in any discussions around uh, issues of race, multiraciality, etc., you put black with anything and it gets really, people get really nervous. Uh, you know, Tiger Woods has never been referred to as really a multiracial golfer. He's an African-American golfer. Uh, they don't know what to do with Keanu Reeves. I hope I can say this. I really don't have any idea. You have to let me know where you're going to show this video if you do because I'm not attacking him. I'm just saying the public perceptions of him. Maybe he's white. Maybe you know he's a surfer. I don't know. Maybe he's a Pratt boy. I don't know. Maybe he's Asian American. Maybe he's European American. Maybe he's mixed. I don't know. Students in my class have often said Keanu Reeves is white. Well, that has never been said about Tiger Woods. Obviously, they might look at Keanu Reeves differently physically. Uh, Mariah Carey went through a terrible firestorm because she forgot to tell people she was part black. Now, why that happened is a good question. But the fact of the matter is, it is not necessarily easier for individuals to identify as multiracial, and I don't want to say that their experience is less complicated and less tormented by other people if they don't have African ancestry. I'm simply saying that there are specificities that come with the social construction of blackness in this country that you can't just be a little black. You either are or you aren't. Whereas there is some negotiability, and I say it's relative depending on the historical time period, depending on the individual experience, the gender, the socioeconomic class. But certainly black and white are very definitive in many ways, certainly of the history of race in this country, and particularly around this issue. And if you notice, in terms of designators, everyone in the country has what we would call an ethno-racial label. Asian Americans, Latino Americans, or Hispanics, Native Americans. But every, the black and white become racialized with a color. And even though African American terminology is kind of shifting back and forth between African American and black, I rarely hear anyone refer to European Americans as just European Americans. White is a category which has a correlation historically with Europeanness, but it's not just limited to being a person of European descent. And one of the concerns that African Americans have particularly expressed about multiracial identity is, is that for so long in this country, the one-drop rule has been so clear in defining who's black and who's not. That was the very tool, actually, that served as the foundation for the civil rights movement that actually ultimately undermined the legitimacy of the one-drop rule when you take it to its logical conclusion by removing laws against interracial marriage. But by virtue of the clarity that that device has provided people on both sides of the fence, actually, but certainly in terms of membership in the African-American community, any discussion about anything in between or fuzzy or, or gray immediately alerts people to the fact, okay, here is the chance for people to jump ship Whiteness is expanding in ways that it has never been able to, to do historically. People will no longer have to be just black anymore, and we know there are a ton of people waiting on the edge of the ship just to do that. And so there are terrible fears based on the legitimate history of the stigma attached to blackness in this country that make African Americans extremely uncomfortable with any discussion of fuzzying a blackness by adding a little bit white to it, making it gray in terms of identity. Because all African Americans know, for the most part, that they have some European and or Native American ancestry. So it's not a discussion about that. It's the concern about, well, what will these people identify as? The irony is, is that the civil rights movement by pushing for opening up public facilities, dismantling Jim Crow, 
ultimately laid the foundation for the dismantling of the laws against interracial marriage, which had really been implemented early on in the colonial period. And as part of this, in the private world, people began to choose partners, perhaps that were of a different uh, background beginning in 1967, which is not to say that marriage is a neutral choice. I'm not saying that there are not all kinds of influences that make people choose partners. I'm simply saying that the option was not even legally available in many parts of the United States up until 1967. Opening that up in conjunction with the opening up of the public schools, the workplace, etc., gave people to have opportunity to interact with each other in ways that had never been possible previously. And when these people, of course, dated, married, and had offspring, the climate in the larger society was also changing to some extent, even though blackness may not have been given the value that it is due. Certainly the stigma that had been attached previously with slavery and the Jim Crow era was changing. And parents were trying to bring both identities to the offspring. That was a very different process that had not really been part of the socialization in the United States. People who have had interracial offspring even previously have typically socialized them as African American. The children have identified as African American, grown up within the African American community in varying ways, and had no question about what they were. Uh, and I'm making a generalization there when I say that, but what I'm saying is, is that, that though the option was there if you look at the parents. They did have parents that were from two different backgrounds who had two different identities. The choice for socialization and identity did not necessarily enter the picture. Well, over time, clearly these children, and this is where the real discussion enters the picture, African Americans have been multi-generational, multi-racial for 400 years, but they've all identified as, as African American, and that is really essentially where the discussion has ended. Even if there has been color discrimination and color hierarchy among African Americans, as there are among many other groups, in terms of the closer you look to being a European American, the more opportunity you may have and the more prestige you may have among African Americans, they were still always African American, even if only, how should you say, even if the connection was a fragile one, it was clear that, well, these are light-skinned black people. When you start talking about multiraciality, it's not light-skinned black anymore. It's actually talking about something different, and so people don't understand, well, what does this mean now? Because you say you're a biracial or a multiracial person, well, does that mean you want to use your white background to now gain advantages that other people who don't have that do? What are you trying to tell me? And so what we have happening is, is the old history of white supremacy and white domination has kind of gotten into in, infused in the current discussion about an identity that is totally different in terms of the source, the origin, and the articulation of it, which doesn't mean that everybody who says that they're multiracial is going out there being a racial ambassador. What it's saying is, is that previously, when people could not uh, identify as a multiracial, the reason that they embraced, in this case, a European background was they wanted the advantages of white privilege. And it was like, okay, I don't want to be on the bottom. I don't want to go to the back of the bus. So let me go to the middle of the bus. And so people used their part whiteness, shall we say, previously in a variety of different strategies that I go in in the book to say, well, don't treat me like one of them because I'm almost like you. And since you won't let me be one of you because of the one drop rule, give me a break. Put me in the middle somewhere. Well, the whole new multiracial identity is also talking about a middling positioning, but it's not saying... I want to be white because I want all the goodies that come from it. Please don't make me black. It's like, no, that's part of who I am. That's my heritage. That's what my mom or my dad is. I should be able to be both of those. And so what we have is an old discourse that kicks in, the whole issue of white racial privilege, and then the really complicated struggle in a society that continues to privilege whiteness across the board 
when people are also trying to embrace a white identity or a European-American background that is simply part of who they are without any questions of privilege. And unfortunately, there are, there, there, there are no roadmaps. It's an uncharted area. There are a lot of people in the media who don't understand some of the problematic things that they say about this that make multiracial identified people look really bad because you can clear that they have some uncleaned up racism in their own thinking. Some of their thinking is very hierarchical. I'm not going to call any names because that would definitely get me in trouble. Uh, but clearly we have two different discussions going on here. I wasn't going to show this chart, and I'm not even sure I will, but maybe I will. Those of you who see the question will see it I'm skeptical to show it because once two grad students in our department told me that it was two-dimensional and static. And I thought, well, it's on a flat surface, so we can't do much about the two dimensions. But also the arrows there are intended to suggest movement within two-dimensionality. I don't have a hologram, what can I say? But the problem is, is that what people are accustomed to thinking that the whole multiracial phenomenon as its middling position is something closely related to G, which is the far right, which is based on inequality of difference. In other words, there are varying differences. The lighter circle is different from the gray, the middle one, and the darker one, but clearly there's a ranking. And in South Africa, to many ways, this is kind of where multiracial fit, people fit there in the middle with the gray circle. They did not have nearly the privileges of Afrikaners or English. They were very, not much better off than blacks, but white Afrikaners were actually able to, shall we say, manipulate them psychologically, say, well, well, we'll treat you like brown Afrikaners if you don't side with blacks. And of course, colors eventually said, wait a minute, the crumbs are, better, are not as good as the whole loaf. So they actually were very engaged during the 70s and 80s in the black consciousness movement to dismantle apartheid. Things have gotten really yucky since then, and I don't have time to go into it here, but the fact of the matter, the history of South Africa, to be multiracial was to be a little less black and then a little less on the bottom, but was not the equivalent to being equal to the people at the top, which in that case were the English and the Afrikaners. B, again, these are generalizations. I'm saying this because I'm looking at the clock. Uh, B is also another fear that multiracial people won't just be in the middle, but there'll be a stepping stone to whiteness, which is what I kind of talked about earlier. And certainly throughout Latin America, this is a normative pattern, particularly in places like Brazil, other parts of Latin America. They don't use ancestry as a criterion. If they did, they would have no whites, because practically everybody has Native American ancestry, depending on the region, or African ancestry. So they say, oh, that's not the issue. What do you look like? How much money do you have? How much education do you have? White can have all kinds of metaphors, not all of them which have to do with uh, an ancestry, and frequently in Latin America, that's not the primary concern. Though, people who phenotypically show strong signs of Native American and or African, African ancestry are on the bottom of the social hierarchy here, as in uh, there, as in the United States. There is a little bit more room for negotiability if you're just a little less black and just a little less Native American. But if you really look like a socially constructed white person in Latin America, nobody's going to have you pull out your pedigree and say, well, are you really white? People know that there are tons and millions and millions of people who are racially white in their own consciousness, who are assumed to be that, but who have African ancestry. In the United States, that's been a historical impossibility, unless you're passing quote-unquote, and saying, well, I'm not going to tell you I have African ancestry, but I really do. That's not necessary, in, uh, even if people do it in Latin America. You can say, I'm a white person, and if you look in their terms, their normative terms of what that means, 
and you have an education, someone is not going to have you pull out anything. Well, the fear is, is that that's the direction the United States will go, either the South African direction or the Brazil direction. And there's no, those fears are legitimate because we still have significant racial hierarchy in our society. And the question is, will this break now of the absolute rigid enforcement of the one drop rule be the final break of the struggle for black liberation? These are absolutely legitimate questions to ask because in our society there is still something called white skin privilege. No matter what else is going on gender-wise, class-wise, a lighter skin is going to open doors for you like when you go down to Saks and the doors just open, you know, they just kind of like open, come in, welcome. Um, even historically with the one-drop rule that has been the case. Well, the fear is now that multiracial identity is just one real big serious break with the absolute clarity of blackness, and yet what people are really not understanding, and this is really important, and yet it is not the solution, that this new multiracial identity is actually functioning quite apart from the social structure, and yet I'm going to talk about the key linkage here, is doing D and A. In other words, it's equality of similarity. B is inequality of similarity. In other words, I don't let you sit down at my table and play my game to the extent that you act and think and eat my food and be like me. But you're not here legitimately. You're here under my, by my goodwill. And if you ever do any of that weird stuff that you used to do, you're out. You're a token. Remember it. Membership is only because I let you in. A is not about that. A is saying combining uh, an equitable kind of inclusiveness, uh, a kind of transformative identity that is neither black nor white. It's something else, but it's not better than either one of them. If you notice, the gray circle is not higher, whereas in the other one, it is higher than one and lower than the other. That is really the identity. In other words, the new, and I say new multiracial identity, because multiracial identity is not new. The old one is definitely operating out of G, to some extent, and B. I'm arguing that the new identity as a configuration is operating out of C and A. One is horizontal, the other is vertical. One is hierarchical, the other one is egalitarian. And yet, that, by, by saying that, that does not mean that the larger society is still not functioning out of G and B. And in fact, it continues to do so. And I don't know how many of you were, were here at the talk last week, but that speaker actually is here, about the role that individuals express in terms of agency and the accomplishment of categories, a variety of different ones, one of which is race, and that people do individually resist, and to the extent that we refuse to accept and perform our society's normative expectations of racial categories is the extent that we are resisting, and of course you can do this individually or collectively. I don't think we have enough information yet to know whether this new multiracial identity as an identity construct is going to be imbued, is going to, enough people are going to be imbued with it to talk about its major transformation in terms of this. But it is a new development, it is a new historical development in the United States, and I argue that it is a new way of looking at intergroup dynamics. When you actually see people who see themselves as equal partners in several different communities, particularly if those are communities that are at war with each other, that is a, a complicated position to be in, but it is a new way of saying, no, I'm black and white, and I'm in the struggle for human liberation, which also includes black liberation, but also includes liberating European Americans from their own unresolved issues about white privilege, white supremacy, and white guilt. That's a deep, deep bag, and not a lot of people are going to want to get into that, because that is serious. But I argue that is the message of the possibility within the identity configuration. As I said, how many people will, will take it to its ultimate conclusion? 
as anyone's guess. Uh, but it is a new development. It is an a historically unprecedented development in the United States race relations in terms of the way, I mean, we haven't had multiracial identified people historically, essentially, for our entire history. And now we do. And the question is, can we use the danger signs of South Africa and Brazil as ways of saying these are the things we really want to avoid? Clearly, we're in a very fuzzy climate right now because a lot of people are using this multiracial phenomenon say, oh, race doesn't matter anymore. We're all mixed and we're all brothers. And let's sing. We are the world. It's like, uh-huh. <laughs> right. That's one of the dangers of it. Class is more important. Well, that shouldn't be a problem either. And that's another talk altogether. But clearly what I'm arguing in the book is, is that we are on a new frontier with issues of boundaries and categories. To what extent this is going to be articulated into a deconstruction of our society's larger social structure is anyone's guess. But I don't think we should underestimate the power of individuals to transform not only their lives but also social structure. Both civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the, the various, the Latino movement, the Asian American movement, the Native American movement, I mean, the, the reason we're having this discussion is because those people fought. So I would say that what people need to do is, is welcome people in the, the anti-racist struggle as multiracial identified people when they join that without requiring them to choose part of who they are because that's part of the struggle, the struggle or the, the, the system of oppression we're trying to get out of. So the people don't have to be either or, but can be both neither or both and. And I argue that, you know, you take it to another level. This is the way business is, you know, done in the United States. This whole center's name is a reaction or so we say a response or a critique of that kind of binary thinking. Interdisciplinary means, well, it's not just one discipline. It's many disciplines coming together. Uh, the environmental movement. There are numerous other movements that are talking, that are, that are articulating this agenda. And yet there are conservative forces in the society that don't want to see it happen. Because it would be a radical transformation of the country and probably make the United States be more like what it says it is already than it is. But to get there is not going to be take place by just people saying, oh, I'm multiracial. That's not it. I do argue that this has to be really a rigorous struggle and that the, the, the educational system is really one of the most important tools for doing this. That right now it becomes another form of social control. And yet if you teach students to think subversively um, about accepting information, about critiquing things that they hear, and also operating in non-dichotomous, that is either or ways, as well as non-hierarchical, the impact can be significant. Uh, the current multicultural curriculum that we have, which is attempting to, to tackle this, to me is limited only because it's functioning only out of D, equality of difference. So we have to do that. That has to happen. If you don't have equality of difference, you can't have equality of similarity. But what there isn't enough discussion about is the transcultural, if you want to call it that. What do you do now with all these differences when people come together? What comes out of that? Can something equitable come out of that that's not hierarchical? And again, the question is open. I don't have the answer. I'm simply positing that this is a, it's a new opportunity in the United States because it is a new identity. We haven't seen it before. It is not a rearticulation of some of the old. Um, and it needs to be respected, but people need to have their antenna on. You need to be aware. You need to be alert. You need to be alert, period, anybody who's talking race. But particularly, I believe it is very key to be able to distinguish between types of multiracial identities and types of people. Because I have met many people who, unfortunately, I hate to say it, who are not articulating what I call the new multiracial identity, but doing some of that old stuff. And it makes me very uncomfortable. Um, I think Q&A would probably be appropriate here. I'm looking at our time. There probably would be some interesting things. I didn't talk about the census because it's a total mess. 
Uh, it's the one chapter in the book that everybody loves, and it's the one that I had the least fun writing. But it is fascinating when you see what went on behind the scenes. But I didn't bring that up purposely. But also, since most of you are students are a significant majority, I don't want you to feel you have to buy my book. If you already have it and you want me to sign it, I'm more than flattered. If you want to come by my office and you get a copy later, I'll give you a personal signing. How about that? A free signing. But I, I, this is not intended, and I'm sure I don't need to say this. This is not a, a book tour. Uh, where I'm trying to get people to buy my book. I certainly hope you read it. There are copies in the library. Um, but I'm most happy that you actually just attended the talk today. And I'm open to any questions that anyone might have. Or comments, even. <laughs> well, that's it. Does anyone have... No, sir, Mark. Can I ask a question about your chart? You may indeed, but be really cautious. I'm very sensitive about this chart. <laughs> <laughs> Under pluralism up there. Okay. Uh -huh, I, what, is, what is E? Okay, I didn't go there <laughs> because I didn't want to get into trouble. Well, okay. E is a kind of ethnic nationalism, which in response to white supremacy and white domination talks about other kinds of supremacy. In other words, it's like, you had us on the bottom, now we're going to come kick your butt. We're going to shift the hierarchy. And unfortunately, a lot of ethnic nationalists across communities articulate that. But it's a logical response to a previous oppression. It's not coming out of a vacuum. But it's certainly a halfway house. It's, 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 it's incomplete. It challenges the positioning of people in the hierarchy, but it just reiterates a new one. In other words, well, I'm going to put you on the bottom. Uh, a lot of people really articulate rhetoric that maybe doesn't really, where, where the underlying premises are not that. But if you listen to a lot of a black nationalism, a lot of Latino nationalists, Native American, whatever. Uh, it can get kind of abrasive at times. You hear it in the women's movement as well. I mean, some of the things they say about men. I mean, you gay people in straits. I mean, it goes down the line. But clearly, it can't be taken out of context. I mean, people who've been in pain are not necessarily going to welcome the people who gave them pain as brothers and sisters. That's not the way human nature necessarily functions. And yet I argue that's actually the most important thing that we have to be doing, as painful as that is. Uh, seeing the structure that is oppressing everybody, including the people who think they're at the top. I believe they're being deprived of their humanity simultaneously. Even it, it, the power to oppress someone else to me is, is a dehumanization. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh man, he has been sniffing some new age glue. You know, like, whoa, that's like too weird. But I'm serious about that. I'm actually absolutely serious. To me, this is really a human liberation struggle. And it, part of the whole problem has been this either-oring of people as dominant and subordinate. And when you really look at the complex intersection of so many, or the interlinking of a variety of different categories of difference, it's much, much more complicated. And so I would argue that European Americans need to be liberated from their own issues just as much as people of color do in the struggle for our common human liberation. But for people to take on that task requires people to jump across the walls, tear down the boundaries, and come out there. And people on the other side often will critique you and criticize you and laugh at you and say, oh, you're stupid, or why do you care about that? And I'm thinking, well, is, are we all in this together? I mean, is that what this is about? If, if you know, um, we're in the struggle as comrades, then it's about humans, who happen to be many different kinds of people. But ultimately, that should be a common goal. We haven't gotten any way close to that. But I argue that that is definitely the direction we should be going, not trivializing any of the p possible responses that people uh, have to oppression, but that some of them are, shall we say, less complete than others.
Is that it? Paul. Oh, all right. Tell me your name. Uh, Ehani. Ehani, okay. Uh, my question my question's kind of, um, it's kind of long. I just wanted to know, um, you, you touched on this briefly, uh, colorism. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know what your views on colorism are within the black community. Um, do you believe colorism is institutionalized? Now, when you say what are my views, what do you mean by that? What, what do you think about colorism? What, what do you... Do you mean, do I think it exists, or do I think it's good, bad, or neutral? I mean... All of that. Okay. <laughs> I think it's bad. Okay, very bad. And yet it's part of the larger system of... I mean, other groups of color have internalized views of themselves based on the dominant group. And even among European Americans, European Americans of varying ethnic backgrounds have internalized images of themselves often as based on the North European model. Uh, so we're talking about a variety of different continuums of colorism or physicalisms, if you want to call it, or featureism. Uh, if you look at the income levels, I didn't go into a lot of numbers and stats here because I just think that's useless. You, you know, it's in the book, and if you want to find out, I can give you more of that. The income level uh, among African-American identified people who are physically more approximate to European-Americans is higher than that of darker individuals. And all you do is just look around you and see who's doing windows and who's not doing windows, and that will tell you right there. I mean, that's the story. Uh, the difference between lighter-skinned, as, as the research says, and darker-skinned African-Americans, the divide between those two populations is as great as the divide between whites and all, all African-Americans. Um, it's the same in the Latino community. It depends on the community you're talking about, the region. But this issue of colorism is so pervasive, it is so normalized, we don't even think about it. But it gives people this unearned opportunity to do all kinds of things. Um, in the movie industry, to get position, to get you know roles as an actress or an actor, or a variety of things, getting white collar jobs, people will think you're smarter. I mean, they've done some studies and shown that people, pe- European Americans and often African Americans, will think that a lighter skinned person is just smarter. A person could be whatever smart means. Obviously, we're not talking SAT scores, but the key is is that there are all kinds of constructions of what whiteness means, and one of them means smart, clean, a variety of things to get encoded in people's thinking, and people will see themselves in relationship to that standard. So unfortunately, historically, people of African descent have internalized this. It was, shall we say, injected from the outside. I would say that a lot of that was undermined by the black consciousness movement in the 60s, but it hasn't eradicated because in the larger society, the messages in the media, I mean, what children see as attractive acceptable, positive, all of it really is associated with varying kinds of things that are default or de facto or literally white. And so how do you, how do you, how do you instill in a child of color that it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be an African American. It's one of the best things to happen to you. It's wonderful to be Asian American. The world would not be the kind of beautiful place it is if you weren't here as a Native American. When the message is out there either non-existent or very negative. And so you know, it's, I say it's children internalized very early, uh, and it's across groups. The whole blonde brunette thing among European Americans is not a whole lot different in some ways in terms of the way it gets articulated in that, you know, blue eyes versus brown eyes. Doris off context lenses. Turn your brown eyes blue. Well, why? <laughs> Might they work? You know, but the message is, well, brown eyes are boring. You won't get a date. You won't get a husband. You won't get a wife. You won't... Those messages are so pervasive in the magazines and the media that until that changes, the, the, being, being able to protect oneself as well as one's children from those kind of things that affect people so early on because they're absorbed so early on in your life, 
It's a struggle. So yes, I think it's terrible. It's one of the things we don't talk about because everybody gets uncomfortable. And I think a lot of people don't even know it exists because it doesn't seem so obvious. Well, they got that job and they, because of something else. It's like, well, they may have also gotten it because of this color of their skin or their facial features. Maybe they are perceived to be more attractive. Maybe they're perceived to be more appropriate for that position, quite apart from their other skills, just by the way they look. Well, that, like I said, it's so automatic. How do you tackle that? That's a deeper problem. And yet I do believe that, that, that the educational system, if we really operated out of the model that Paulo Freire talks about in the pedagogy of the press, where education is a form of liberation and not a form of social control, and that it's a theater of ideas, and you should encourage students to be creative and subordinates. In other words, to really dig down, you know, what in the hell are you here on the planet for? What are you doing? Why, are you, why do you even bother to wake up in the morning? Most people say, well, I want a job. It's like, well, yeah, we need that, but what are you really here for? And so many students these days are thought to think of a diploma to get a degree, excuse me, to get a job, and I'm thinking, well, you know, you work, you retire, and you die, so what else? You know, like, that's the scenario. What about the process in between? So we have to really reconstruct just the way we teach, how we view education to tackle some of this, and I don't see the commitment certainly not in D.C. yet, uh, or even locally. So the kind of thing that I see happening is a major kind of thing that is taking in small grassroots projects. I don't see a major commitment to the country to this kind of education because it would really radically transform the way we do race, gender, class, and a whole bunch of stuff in this society. And there are a lot of people that don't want to see that change. You're talking about a major revolution, and I don't necessarily mean going down and knocking out buildings. A big one up here and I do believe the schools have a tremendous power to do that. Not the way they're currently constructed, but as a transformative kind of education. I have to keep saying that because people think I'm talking about what we've got now, and I'm saying, no, that has to go too. And there are individuals doing this, struggling daily to, to, to achieve this in a kind of new pedagogy and what have you, but in terms of the larger agenda, as a new educational, racial, a new educational project, I don't see it as a massive commitment. Paul? Uh, did I answer your question? Yes. Maybe even more, huh? Okay. Paul. Um, Reg, I was uh, recently walking across campus oh, snooping on a conversation between two students who were walking in front of me. Yes, we do that all the time. You should watch yourself. <laughs> uh, and uh, they were talking about you. Oh. Uh, okay. One of them was telling the other one about this guy, this really great guy who teaches sociology of racial this and that. And saying, and this person referred to you as a light-skinned African American. Yes. Okay. Right. And the other person said, "No, no, I've heard about that person. He's a multiracial person." <laughs> okay. And I am not here to. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here to play with you. But um, I would like to know what your sense of the relative merits of those two constructions are. Uh, what you do that with yourself, how, how you feel about other people doing different stuff with that stuff, and kind of how you got to that place. I think both of them are accurate. Um, and they're accurate in a variety of different ways. Um, I'm going to be perceived, because of our social constructions in this society, as they are in 19... Oh, yeah, 2000. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Lost a few years there. Uh, the year 2002. I will be perceived, just at face value, uh, even if somebody might even think visually there might be something else just to, that they might see, I don't know what they see, but they're going to see black man. And the police are definitely going to see that when I'm on the street. I'm real clear about that. Light-skinned or not, criminal is what they see. So 
that is part of my, that is part of the history of what it means to be a person of African descent. I don't think it is perhaps nearly as a refined and fine-tuned definition of who I see myself as. Um, I see myself as a multiracial person of partial African descent, but also Asian, Indian, and German, Jewish, and Irish, and Lord knows who how much what other stuff is there. English, Native American. I mean, I only know a few backgrounds, but if I have thirty-three ancestries, that's a lot of people. So I mean. If I often let people do what they need to do to be comfortable. If somebody needs to be comfortable and see me as a light-skinned African-American, depending on the day and depending on whether I've had a little white Zinfandel and all kinds of other stuff, you know, I might t- take the conversation in a direction, let's talk about some stuff. I may let it go uh, because I know they're not going to understand they won't understand what I'm saying. If I sense there's a possibility, I might go with it. It happens to people all the time. But I do think, I mean, I think at our point in, in, our, at our point in history, those are going to be the two um, labels, and perhaps less multiracial, unless they hear someone say, oh, well, I heard that. In fact, that's, I've had other students say <laughs> that they've heard that I say that, and it kind of makes me think, well, does that take away from the legitimacy of it, just because I think it? I mean, do you think that it, it articulates anything about my experience, how I see myself, how I, you know, function in the, my day-to-day world? I wake up in the morning, and, and through the lens of race, I see the world through the lens of a multiracial person who is constructed as an African-American. That's the way the world functions for me daily. And depending on whether it's to the grocery store or the bank or in a conversation with someone, all of this comes up. And I have to clean it up on the moment and say, I don't, hate, don't, don't hate this person. They didn't understand. They didn't mean any harm. Move forward. But it's a constant cleanup operation because the majority of people are going to get it. And, I, you know, and other people uh, feel very much the same way. People who get constructed as white who identifies multiracial, go through a very different set of issues, but very similar, where people are not seeing you as you are, but their own comfortable projections normatively of what they think you should be for their own comfort level, because they don't think anything otherwise. And so this multiracial phenomenon is so new, going back to the speaker last week, Sarah Finstermaker's work, we haven't accomplished it enough. It is, not, it is an interactual project that hasn't had enough interaction where there are enough people being it for anybody to really know. And people just say, well, what are you really? And he's like, well, I just told you. But it's like, well, I need you to be somewhere for me, like here or there. You said you're here and there, and maybe, oh, well, I can't deal with that. I've got to go somewhere. <laughs> so that's as much, you know, there's pain with that. I'm not saying this is fun. But what do you do? I mean, there, you, you, you choose to live your life and struggle in whatever way you can. And, 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 and part of my teaching is to try to get people to be comfortable with people where they're coming from and to listen to people's stories before you decide anything because you may hear something that will totally surprise you. You cannot assume anything about anybody. Uh, and when you get new information, one of the first things you do is internalize and incorporate it as part of who that person is rather than, well, I can't deal with it. It's too complex. I'm going to reject it and simplify you for my sake. That's very disrespectful. I don't think anybody, whatever issue we're dealing with, will want that to happen. So I would say... That it's, we're, midstream, we're not even midstream. We're just at the beginning of the struggle. And uh, I think as more and more people identify as multiracial, I think people will finally have to say, oh, they're here to stay. 
Because I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, this is a little temporary. They're not going to last for long. They won't. We're going to do the way we have done this for 400 years. I think the whole planet is melting down. That's the cats. This is not just here. It's happening everywhere. People are not staying in one location anymore. you got in California so many different combinations of backgrounds uh, that we will all maybe be human at some point because we will all be so complicated. But, oh, my, that's like another talk, so to speak. Any, I hope some of you are interested in taking my class in the winter. I'm not pushing because I always get over-enrolled. But uh, I teach a class called Betwixt and Between. And this, the course actually uses the book, not because I want to sell the book, but I wrote the book to do the course. Um, in the winter quarter, I'll be teaching it. So I welcome any of you. And certainly, please come by my office if you have any issues you want to talk to me about. I'm in Allison on the second floor. I have office hours on Monday, 3 to 5. I welcome you. You can email me. Fairly accessible. So, are there any other? I'm looking at our time. I don't know if there are any other questions anyone has. If you do, here's your chance. That's it. Thank you very much for being here.